my father, my mother had a Jewish friends, a dentist and a lawyer. And when they suddenly disappeared in about 1940, 41, uh, that's when my father began to have his doubts. Enormous secrecy in the regime. When he took over, and this one must remember this, there was no television. There was no Walter Cronkite on TV saying, you know, uh, the Führer Adolf Hitler intends to kill six million Jews or whatever. I mean, there was none of that. It was all about economics. It was about rebuilding a destroyed Germany. Hey there, I'm Ed Begley Jr., and I'm willing to do anything to help the planet. I fit my trash in a glove compartment, I recycle denim to insulate my house, and I love my wife. And I am Rochelle Carson Begley, and I prefer to wear my denim, especially when someone is too cheap to turn on the heater. And I love Ed. This week on Begley S, the phenomenal actor Eric Braden, 37 years on Young and the Restless. He talks to us about his life before acting, which is fascinating, and uh, how he almost drowned, and being a part of Marlon Brando's 90-minute prank. Hey, just a heads up, this episode has some language that might uh, not be suitable for all ears, so if you've got young ones around, you might want to put on some headphones. He was definitely to the point. Hey everybody, welcome back to Begley S. We're very lucky today because actor Daytime Emmy winner and author Eric Braden has bravely offered himself to be on our show. And so we're going to chat with him very soon. But before we do that, we want to thank you all for sharing your thoughts on the podcast. Tim left a very nice review on iTunes, or as they now call it, Apple Podcasts. He said, very much enjoyed the banter and great suggestions for living a better life by recognizing our place on this earth. We need to understand that we are custodians of this wonderful home and take care of it, like Ed and Rochelle do. Also, they promote healthy living, but do not judge those that can't quite do the same. And I admire that as well. Well, thank you, Tim. We admire you for being another caregiver for the earth. And thank you for um, talking about judgment. Um, we don't judge others. Ed just judges me. Right, honey? Regularly. Yeah. Like I'm judging you right now for what you're doing with this next paragraph. <laughs> and also, since last week uh, was about our solar power, uh, Glenn shared his journey with renewable energy. He wrote, hi, Ed and Rochelle, and I've been following you since living with Ed. Well, thank you very much for doing that. I recently retired from 25 years in public education in East Texas and moved back to my home state of New Mexico. We purchased an acre in the Sacramento Mountains and we're beginning to build our solar power system for a dry cabin and a 32-foot travel trailer, starting small and building from there. Currently, we have lights inside the cabin, motion detector lights outside, all LED, and a 12-volt flat-screen TV, all operated by a single deep cell battery and one small solar panel. I have a 5,000-watt slash 10,000-watt surge inverter, and that will install for the travel trailer to handle everything and anything. I plan to add a wind turbine to the system. Thank you for all you do. And by the way, Transylvania 65000, one of my favorite movies. That is fantastic, Glenn. Thank you. Yeah, that's one for you. I, I can't wait till they start, people start talking to me in the language I can understand. Okay, so. If, what language is that, honey, <laughs> so I can hire an interpreter? I don't know. Like, so I found this really great new designer and this new makeup, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so. So if you have something to share, you can email us at begleyesque at gmail.com. Tweet us or leave us a comment on Facebook at begleyesque. We can't wait to hear more about the amazing things you've all been up to to help the planet. Today we're joined by a dear friend, an incredibly talented actor, daytime Emmy Award winning person, now author Eric Braden. For over 30 years, he has starred in the very, very long running daytime drama, The Young and the Restless, as the ruthless but charming villain you love to hate, Victor Newman. You will also recognize him from Rat Patrol, that wonderful show which I loved. Colossus, the Forbin Project, loved that. Susan Clark's a dear friend. And Titanic, he was great in that. Titanic. Recently, he released his memoir, I'll Be Damned, How My Young and Restless Life Led Me to America's Number One Daytime Drama. Congratulations, Eric Braden. Yes. Thank, thank you, Ed Begley. Thank you. It was nice to see you. Very happy to be here. It's a beautiful home. My God, how airy and how nice and clean and fresh and you got to do me one favor. You've got to tell Dabney how wonderful it is so I can make him slightly jealous. We're both Dabney good friends Coleman. with Dabney Coleman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dabney you Coleman, think, you, you saw know, Wait, again? hold on a second. <laughs> yes. Do you know some other Dabneys? 
You think I a wasn't going to say Coleman in a second? You, know you can't take a breath with her. You can't. Yeah, yeah, Coleman. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about Coleman. You can't. Okay. Anything. It's from. Many, it's from Pilates. It's from Pilates. I think so. Yeah. How many Dabneys do you know, honey? Dabney is that is the only Dabney. There, there is go. just one. He's yep. a dear friend of mine. Dear friend of Eric's for many years. How long have you known him? Do you? I've known Dabney since 1962 or three. You've oh, known him a lot Molly? more long time than me. I've known and him. He used to play tennis on the Barrington courts. Sunset. He's a good tennis player. He's a very good tennis player. Very he was good. the best of the celebrity tennis players. Wow. That's what I hear. Good athletes. Yeah, that's uh, what I hear. None. Wow. And, and you're a good tennis player, aren't uh, yes, you? Yes, but Dabney was very good. That's what yeah. I've heard from yeah. other wonderful tennis players, really good people. Played from childhood on. Wow. He did. I did not, but he did. I yeah. learned it late. So uh, Dabney is an old friend, and he is yeah. the one who me actually too. convinced me to do the soap. Really? He did. Yes. I came up. I didn't know what soaps were. I had no idea. So I uh, talked to him one day and I said, listen, um, what do you think about doing a soap? He says, do it and you'll love it in a short, cryptic way. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that was the thing that pushed me over the edge to decide to do it. Well, sound advice. And he gave you very good 30, advice. 37 years later. I, I can imagine know. what he said. Hold on a second, you. A soap, Jesus Christ, what the hell are we talking about here? That's work, man. Work day in, day out, work. Yep. But you, you know, always... he had done it. He had done the soap. That's right. He had done it. And Jeannie, and his wife, had done the soap. Well, he would be very thrilled to have us talking about him. I yes. Think. <laughs> yes. I'm going to make sure he knows. Dabney Comer, that son of a gun. Yeah. And, but and I'm the I just one... always I thought he was a wonderful actor. And uh, we had a few political arguments here and there. But beyond that, we mostly... Love the sport of tennis. Love sports, period. Yeah. He's one of the few people I really respect in this business. Me too. I really respect and love Dabney. I met him on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Uh, actually, was on Fernwood Tonight, which came after that. I'd worked on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And then Dabney started working on a show called Forever Fernwood, kind of the sequel yeah. to Mary Hartman, uh, Mary Hartman. I went, uh, who is this guy playing Jimmy Joe Jeter's father? Merle Jeter, I think, was his name. I went, I've never seen anybody like this. He's just amazing. And then he went on to 9 to 5 and all the, you oh, know, all these great movies. Oh, and five. Buffalo Bill, uh, Buffalo my Bill. favorite, my favorite, which changed my life, Buffalo Bill. But that's another story. Hard to top him. He, yeah. Here's one good one he did to me. He, I don't know if he's ever gotten you like this. I, and occasionally when you think, like in a tennis match, I've got him. I've hit the ball so far down the court, he can't possibly get to it. And yet he does. Here's what he did to me. We're both working on NBC shows. This is the 80s. It's like 82 or something. And every year they give you a nice Christmas gift. And I knew Dabney would sleep on his lunch break there on the lot at CBS MTM. And I would usually go home and check my mail, because that's the kind of guy I am. Went home and checked my mail, and my Christmas gift had arrived, arrived, Eric. It was a little tiny television, a little what they called a Sony Watchman. At the time, it was a hell of a gift to get from the network. And I got a Sony Watchman, and Dabney and I were scheduled to have dinner that night, so I had to call him anyway. So before I called him, I composed myself, and I went, I think I can finally get Dabney, because I know he spent lunch break sleeping in his dressing room. He definitely didn't go home. So I've got one up on him. So Dabney, hi, it's Ed. I just got the, the table at, at Tana's. And then he could hear in the background a little bit of something was going on. He, from his end of the phone call, he could hear some noise. I said, I'm sorry, Dabney. I've got this little TV they gave me. They gave me my gift, a little television. And I can't find the volume. There it is. I'm sorry to distract you with that. But I got a little TV for my Christmas gift. I got it days ago from MD. Did you get one? Did you get one of those gifts? Knowing he hadn't, of course. No, I didn't get a little TV. Oh, Dabney. Now I feel two feet tall. The last thing I'd want to do to a guy like you is make you feel bad. You would never do that to me. So I'm so sorry. I got a little, I, you didn't get a little TV? No, I didn't get a little TV. I got a big TV. I got a big screen TV. Hold on a second. No, in the back. No, there's a little trap door. No, I had, they gave me a little one too. They put a little one in the back of the big TV. I couldn't beat him. You couldn't, I couldn't get him. He probably didn't even draw a breath. Before. He didn't take a second. Yeah, yeah. He's quick, boy. That man quick is quick. and vicious. But I, we have Eric here today, and I'm going to talk about Eric because Me too. I just finished reading. Almost, I've got like 20 pages left of your amazing book. That's Give it to kind of me. I want to read it. For, I'm next. And for so many reasons, this is a great book on so many levels, and there's so many ways to go. One is, you know, you're a German, you're a European. I just got back from Europe. I love Europe. But you came here and didn't know what you were going to do, and then you 
fell into acting, which is just, weren't you a valet at uh, Scandia or something? I did, I did uh, Beacon's Moving Furniture. I, when I came to America, I was in Montana mm. for a year at the University of Montana. I had a track and field scholarship. I'd won the German Youth Championship in discus and javelin and shot put. That's why you're in final fiddle to this day. He's an you athlete. look in great shape. You're an athlete. Work out every day. Good man, it looks. And it shows. I won the U.S. championship over here in 1973 wow. in soccer. Wow, yeah. I, that's a, that's. A m- so anyway, over here in L.A., parking cars. I remember coming to L.A. after a river trip in Idaho, on the River of No Return. I was the first one with an American guy to go up and down the Salmon River in Idaho. It's called the River of No Return for That's a reason. Right. No one had returned. <laughs> so I was young and dumb enough at the age of 19 to throw all caution to the wind. Did you hike it or raft part no, of it? No, we, we went in a 40-foot-long Crestliner motorboat, with a 15-foot-long, uh, with a 40-horsepower Johnson in the back. Wow. We went up against the rapids oh my God. and came down again. And what kind of level rapids did you hit in a river like that? What kind of a... To be honest with you, this was in... in, in they probably didn't rate them back in then. In May, I have no idea. Well, yeah. five, they you warned don't us, They warned us in Lewiston and Clarkson, where we started out on the Snake River. Mm. They had a meeting with the Chamber of Commerce members, and they said, do you know what you're getting into? I said, no. They said, well, you know, it's called River of No Return for a good reason. <laughs> I said, didn't care. I said, okay, that's fine. So then we went, we went up the Snake River, perfectly placid, calm, beautiful. thought, what are they talking about? Went into the Salmon River, and then a cacophony became louder and louder. Oh, boy. And but pristine, huge canyon walls and all that. It's beautiful. What are they talking about? And it became more cacophonous. We came around the first bend, and there was the first rapid. Oh, jeez. And I thought, holy shit. <laughs> So had I had a chance to get out of it, then I would have done that. But pure ego, because he didn't say no, I said, let's do it. Just two of you in this boat. Yes. Bob McKinnon is now a teacher in Great Falls, married to a former homecoming queen from University of Montana, Susie Cook. And uh, we conquered that first rapid and then went up uh, for about two weeks. One tough rapid after the other, and... uh, almost drowned three times, but survived it. And that's how I essentially came to Los Angeles, because we made a documentary film called The River Busters. Right. And with that film, we came, there was a show by Governor Knight, he had a talk show, former Governor Knight and and, uh, Bill Barrett, Aqua Venture, Mm. and we were on those shows. And I stayed here, we got $500 each. His girlfriend was pregnant, he went back to Montana, I stayed here, and uh, didn't know a soul in L.A., and started parking cars on La Cienega Boulevard. Because I saw these guys running around, young guys parking these great cars. I said, wait a minute, that looks like a job, but a wonderful job. So I went in one morning, I said, good morning. I said, uh, any possibility of getting a job here? Uh, sure, you can drive? Yes. Okay, start tomorrow morning. Dollar twenty-five an hour. And they took the tips there's a guy standing behind the desk, and he took the tips. You didn't get to see any of the tips. What year was this, by the way? 1960, 61, wow. 60, 61. Aww. So L.A. was a very lonely town in 1960, 61. I think L.A. has improved enormously, <laughs> exponentially over the years. I agree. It was a boring place. Remember the, the smog back in those Horrible. days, too, Eric? Horrible. Well, I, I competed in, in soccer after. Oh, my God. How did you do and we Sometimes smog? we had to stop training. We couldn't breathe. Jeez. So the smog issue has been a pet peeve of mine for years. And you probably know, even though we have four times the cars from 1970, millions more people, we have a fraction of the smog. Look what we did. We made it cleaner with catalytic converters on cars, combined cycle gas turbines, spray paint booths. All of that technology we hope would work did work. And that is because of regulation. Correct. So this nonsensical notion of doing away with government regulations <laughs> Can you imagine? is so atavistic, it is so primitive, I cannot even begin to describe it. I don't know what the sense of that is. I don't understand why people would want to get rid of the EPA. That's how we have cleaner air. Please. Richard Nixon signed the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. I mean, these are things that we had the Cuyahoga River catching fire in 1969. That's what I think led to a lot of the zeal for a lot of people with the first Earth Day in 1970. We had rivers catching we fire. Just, we just now had a poisoning in, in about a year ago in, in West Virginia on a right. river. Yeah. 
chemicals released by that Murray guy who now gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to Trump's inauguration ball. And hence the rules applying to the dumping of chemicals in rivers was undone. They tried to save some money in Flint, Michigan, and they got the water from a different place. They thought it would be more cost-effective, and look what happened there. It's just uh, there's a lot of heading in the wrong direction. The thing about government regulations is, to me, quite simple. Obviously, sometimes the reach is too far, but then you have people who will demonstrate against that and try to remedy that or try to improve that. Right. But the notion of doing away with government and government regulations where do these people live? I don't well, understand. they think the government is business. I mean, that's what we have. We have a businessman, supposedly a good businessman. I doubt that, but running our government—that's I diverse. Okay, I don't. But but the point. But the point is, you show me. You yeah. show me, the reality of the thought they have, that business regulates itself. Are you kidding never, me? Never. Are you kidding no. me? Absolutely. Well, the nature of business is profit. Right. Period. Period. Out. Gone. Absolutely. No one who runs a big corporation is going to think about, oh, we will regulate ourselves. My ass. <laughs> right. He is thinking about the stockholders. Exactly. Period. Exactly. And look the at next quarter's earnings. Your homeland from years ago, Germany, look how well that they've done with environmental regulations. They have a strong, thriving Green Party there. They have more solar in Germany than anywhere else. I think it's, they get a huge percentage of their energy from re- uh, renewables. From wind, from wind and solar. Yeah. But, right. But the point is they haven't done enough yet in Germany as far as cars are concerned. They have not. And that is because the car lobby has an inordinate influence on, on German politics, on the parliament in Berlin. What does? I, uh, auto industry. The auto oh, industry. Oh, of course. Made them they they yeah. employ, I mean, right. BMW, VW, Mercedes, Audi. They employ mm-hmm. millions of people. Right. So hence, uh, they, any kind of regulation, they usually stay away from. Interesting. And um, look, I did films, I remember in the 60s in Spain. We did the Rapitol in Spain. And then afterwards, I did a thing with Janet Lee and Rosanna Brazzi in Madrid, and then with Bert Reynolds and, and, and Raquel Welch and Jim Brown in partly Madrid and Spain. You couldn't walk in Madrid in the afternoons. It was that smoggy. Right. Mm-hmm. You couldn't walk in Paris. In the you 60s. couldn't run. Yes. You couldn't run. Yes. Sickeningly smoggy. Sickening. So are government regulations pertaining to the environment good? You bet. You bet. And imperative. I agree. Period. What do you think about Angela Merkel? Is she, uh, she's been pretty good on the environment. Angela Merkel has been pretty good. Um, as far as I'm concerned, they are not... Look, I had this conversation with the German president at the embassy in, New York, in, in Washington, D.C. 25, 30 years ago. I said, why in the world is our country that is leading technologically probably in the world not coming out with cars that are environmentally totally clean, either with hydrogen or with electricity. We have the means. We certainly have the technical means. And uh, he couldn't answer it succinctly, obviously because of the pressures of the car companies who are involved in making money. And that is all they're concerned with, and they're short-sighted. The problem with a lot of business these days is that think in quarterly terms. Their positions Mm -hmm. as executives are contingent upon earnings within one quarter or two quarters. Right. Not the long term. Right. Therein lies a terrible problem, as far as I'm concerned. So VW, BMW, Mercedes should have been leading the pack mm-hmm. in, in electric cars, hybrid cars, etc. They're not. They're now slowly following. They have the technological means. And I hope there are hydrogen cars and ethanol-powered cars and all that. But right now, today, I drive an electric car around L.A., I probably drive it, I know I drive it 10,000 miles a year, and I'm charging it on nine kilowatts of solar I have on the roof of this house, so it is a clean, clean car. There's no coal power that's charging it. There's no natural gas power. There's no nuclear. It's a clean, clean vehicle, and that's possible today, that kind of technology. So we need to have more of that available to everybody. Yes. So that brings me to the point that when you, your book, you clearly you're interested in history and politics and I guess, you know, you fell into acting. Um, we didn't finish that, but you were a valet, and then you met an... A- a- mm, you that, and then um, I washed dishes at an old restaurant called La Scala. You worked at La Scala? Yes. As a, I loved La Scala. As a dishwasher and a busboy. Oh, my God. And Dan Tanner was a head waiter 
at oh my God. at that time. I and, never knew that. And Jean Leon had a soccer team. That's why I worked at La Scala. And he paid his players. And we got $20 a game or something like that. And um, they said, you can have a job at La Scala. I said, let it be close to the kitchen. I was always hungry. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that turned out to be the case. So Dan Tanner and Maddie from Mateos. On Maddie, of, of course. I know Matt. Oh, my God. Remember, they were all at La Scala at the time. And Dan and I have been friends ever I since. I didn't know Maddie was at La Scala, too. How oh, do yeah. I not know? Oh, I didn't yeah. know any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But yeah. out of that, you met an agent, right? Is that how it happened? No. no. I was okay. parking cars at Scandia. <laughs> okay. And some, some of the other parking lot attendants, who I assume were actors, said, listen, you could make a lot of money playing Germans. They need a lot of Germans in town. And I said, hmm. The idea wasn't totally strange to me, because oh. I was very good in Germany. In high school, you, you're graded on how well you read a text aloud, mm. classical text, and how well you interpret it. And I was always very good at that. I was always asked to do it. So I was very good in cold reading, mm. and the best important. preparation without realizing that it would one day be very good for me. And so, it, so the Kona agency, Paul Kona, Paul Walter Kona, Kona, I remember Paul, used to come by by uh, Scandia. I think his office was across the street. Yes, or exactly. Yeah. Right. And um, they said, "Would you be interested in?" I said, "Hmm, okay." We have a meeting the next week at Walter's office. And they said, can you read this? And I was always very good at reading aloud, very quickly. And I did, and he said, next week, you have an, an interview for a dreadful film called Operation Eichmann. <laughs> they had just caught Adolf Eichmann in, in Argentina, the Israelis had. And this was a B-movie made at the Hal Roach Studios next to MGM. Sure, I remember 1961, yeah. 62. So... Went there, got the part, and on the day of, I didn't have a car, took the bus, was an hour and a half late, and they rushed me into the makeup room. I'd never seen, no idea what it was, never been <laughs> on a film set before, never been in the theater before, nothing. Knew really? nothing about, nothing, absolutely nothing. So, rushed me to the makeup room, I thought, what the hell is this, in the makeup room? And they, I just very stoically said yes, I said no, and they rushed me to the set, and the director shook my hand very eagerly and said, okay, are you ready? I said, um, yes. So I wasn't ready for anything. I'd received <laughs> blue, uh, blue pages, pink pages, yellow pages, didn't know what they meant. Oh, my God. I'd never looked at the script before. I had no idea what that meant. Those were revisions for those people who are listening <laughs> who don't know. So it could have been my first and last job. Now, you know as an actor, you know that. The director comes to me and says, when Werner comes, Werner Klemperer. Werner Klemperer, sure. Yes, played Eichmann. When Werner comes to that point, you walk up to him and that's where you have your scene. And I had the feeling that you have when, I don't know, perhaps you're let in execution. You know this is it. It's over with. They find you out. That's it. Right. Action. You know, this dreadful feeling of, just you feel like lead. Yes. And I take one or two steps and cut, 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 cut. The camera had broken down for 20 minutes. So, a sweet old lady, script lady. Script supervisor. Yes. Walks up to me in a very motherly, maternal fashion, says, do you know what you have to do? I said, no. She says, you have to say these lines. This is Werner speaking, this is you speaking. Okay. Fortunately, I'm a fast study. Oh, boy. So I learned it. And did the scene in one take. So you didn't have know that you needed to memorize Nothing. the scene before? You didn't know I what had, it meant. The I had, I know of what, paper, what does that oh mean? Oh, my know, God. did not know what it meant. Talk no about novice. Okay, that is... So years later, <laughs> when I wrote this biography, yes. I asked Lindsay Harrison, who wrote it with me, to please find out who that lady was. And she did. It's in the book. Awesome. I forget her name now, but I, I owe her my career. She saved your bacon. That's she saved... Her. My yeah. ass. Yeah. She could see that look on your face like a deer in the headlights. She like, could. I was so panicked. You have no idea. Oh, I, I've had that panic. Actually, we're all three actors. You've had here. it recently. Yes, I'm having it right now. I, we're all three actors, and each of us have come to acting in a very, very different way. You guys get to work. I don't. But that's okay. Well, it's we're two story. and a half It's actors. another show. But that story in itself is just a marvel to me. How the, the course of your life completely changed. Yep. M amazing. Yep. And then you went on to play lots of Germans and 
you know, and uh, I love all the stories in the book about the various... But I was the only, also the only German actor though who got out of that, who got out of just playing Germans because mm. it was too dehumanizing, it was too stupid for me. And as much as you liked the Rapid Patrol, I thought it was a cartoon. I enjoyed doing it, enjoyed making the money. Right. It was a cartoon. I was a the kid, re- and so I thought, oh, well, this of is Of course, fun. great. The reality was the very opposite. You had a smaller army that Rommel commanded, the Africa Corps, against the might of the British Eighth Army and the Americans. And he had them all running. It was the very opposite of what was portrayed on the Rap Patrol. Mm. That's a different subject matter. Right. The changing of history and the Second World War was far more difficult than Hollywood ever imagined it to be. Of right. course, of course. Dreadful. Which you talk about at length, actually, in the book about your, where you come from and uh, how the, the climate of how you, Adolf Hitler comes to be and then good people get caught up in this. Absolutely. And, and uh, how important history is. It is vitally important and the most important lesson to be learned from that era is that uh, be aware of simplistic solutions to complex problems. Right. Oh, very mm-hmm. good. And uh, that is the essence of fascism, yeah. is to simplify complex problems. Like, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. That's right. right? Yeah, right. we've heard that a few times. Right. And so I can only imagine getting here at 18. 18. And just the sort of, I mean, that really is, you know, this is destiny. It's destiny that, to me, I mean, the way we, how do you end up in America and become an actor? And then with all the beauty of being an actor, as I see it, and you're talking about in the book, is that you get to blend all of your interests, your history, your political interests, and people listen to you. It's a wonderful profession. Right. When you're successful. When you're successful. Yes, and we're all three if represented not, here. If you're not, it's dreadful. <laughs> well, it's, I, you'd have to create your own uh, we've outlet. We've been very lucky. Yeah. 150,000 registered actors, I think. Yes. Of which 1% make a living. Think about that statistic. I know. How it's lucky am I? It's extraordinary. Every you know, day I wake up, I know I'm blessed. blessed. Yes. Yeah. And one thing that also touched me in your book, you, you talk about your wife. In glowing terms, I might add, might take a little, you're going to read this after me. But um, <laughs> she seems to have a very, uh, she seems like an actress. Was she an actress? No. But she went to, she went to private, she went to Marymount High School. Uh-huh. And with um, Frank Sinatra's daughters, I think, Amir Farah and, and all those people. So she knew uh, a lot of people in the business, but she knew she wasn't impressed by the business. She's an artist, mm-hmm. and uh, she really introduced me to Fellini, to Bergman, to oh all those films. Wow. To the only theater that played foreign films was in Los Feliz, remember? Yes. What was remember the name that? of that theater? Los Feliz Theater. I think it was, yeah. yes. I used to yeah. go there. Yeah. That's where I saw my first Fellini film That's right. at that theater. She took me to that theater wow. and introduced me to a whole new world because I was not aesthetically trained and became sensitized to all of that and uh, became a huge fan of Ingmar Bergman's primarily. He's from Northern Europe, Sweden, obviously. And that whole brooding, brooding, that's, that brooding that is dictated by the weather. It's always mm-hmm. gray and rainy and blue. <laughs> so... Um, well, Always this, wish I had been able to be in Bergman's films, I must say. Yeah. Anyway. That makes two yeah, of us. Yeah, a great filmmaker. But you were smart enough to listen to her, which I find interesting. <laughs> Intent. But, <laughs> I'm um, sorry, honey. But what also, you're saying, I was, yeah. See, I was like, busy. I came to acting via theater in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, yeah. You came to acting and then got into theater later, right. but you started, which I love this theater, the Santa Monica Playhouse. The Santa Monica Playhouse, yeah, with, yeah. with uh, a friend of mine, Norbert Meisel and, and Ted Roeder. And uh, the first play I did was A Lady of Larkspur Lotion by Tennessee Williams. That's I played, funny. <laughs> played, a, played a drunk writer, a young German immigrant playing a drunk writer. Great. And uh, loved it. Licked blood that moment. The next play was by Jean-Paul Sartre called Keane, by the actor Edmund Keane. And I played the Prince of Wales. Loved it. And I said, this is it. This is what I want to do. You know? You know, and you you actually got to go to Broadway, and I I loved your... uh, Shortly thereafter. The description of sort of anticlimactic it was. What Broadway show did you do? I did a... That is predicated on having done some Mission Impossibles, and one where I guest starred as a Russian spy who quoted Shakespeare. 
and was seen by George Schaefer, who was about to direct a Broadway play called The Great Indoors, and uh, with Geraldine Page mm. and Clarence Williams III. Oh, yes. And um, Kurt Jürgens, the German actor, who was an enemy below, wonderful actor. Right, right. Who was an idol of mine when I grew up, because I went to two films to... Long story short, got the part, and uh, very interestingly written script about play, about confrontation of a young German who comes to Harvard as an exchange student and is asked by his mother to visit a gentleman in the South who happened to be German-Jewish and who he, she had had an affair with in Germany, and I was the product of that affair. but didn't know that. So I visit uh, that gentleman in the South, and uh, his uh, houseboy is Clarence Williams III. Mm. And he and I in the first act discovered that we are probably half-brothers in the 60s, yeah. 65. Big what stuff. interesting play, big Incendiary stuff. back then. Imagine that. Yeah. In- extraordinary. So I saw the writers and the producers, upon the producers' wishes, slowly whittle away and mm. turn it into kind of a farce. And I walked with her on the way home from the theater at night after rehearsal. I said, what are you doing, Irene? This is, this is an extraordinary play. My God. You got the German-Jewish issue. You got the black-white issue. You got all of this. What are you not pursuing? And those were exactly the reviews by Stanley Kaufman and Walter Carr mm. after the play debuted. But the debut of the play, I'm talking to two actors who know that feeling. You know, opening nights are scared, are scary. Yeah. And I had made the mistake of opening the curtain and looking <laughs> as to who was coming in. Oh, no. And it was Tennessee Williams, Lee Strasberg, and Bancroft. Oh, boy. They were all sitting there. Oh, boy. And I thought, what am I doing here? And I had my hand on the door that leads to the outside. Oh, boy. Into New York City. I said, <laughs> I disappear into the... Mass of humanity. No one will know the difference. Deal with it. Understudy will take over. And just in the last moment, as I had my hand on that door handle, I said, can I curse now? Yes, of course. Yes. I said, I went back to the open. I said, fuck you. You're not going to intimidate me. No one intimidates <laughs> me. You will not intimidate me. And with that feeling, I went on. That's how Fantastic. I'm married to Ed, right there. That is amazing. That's your German... I don't know if it's German. I just think it's your, you know, I guess it is. Maybe it's, if you don't give, it's like, you know, determination. You That's your athlete. You pain, you come That's out the, the other athlete side. in you. Yeah. The athlete comes yeah. out. And the actor, because I think any actor has to have that if you're yes. going to stay in it. The yes. game. You go through the pain, then you get the endorphins on the other side, and you get the victory, you get the medal, you win the game. Right, but also, uh, in, was that your first sort of introduction, or had you been thinking about race relations in this country prior to that? Oh, when I came to America, I was 18. I took a Greyhound bus from New York to Galveston, Texas. <laughs> so you saw and that it. was my <laughs> uh, introduction to America. Yeah. Why did you go to Galveston? Because the lady who sponsored me, my cousin, was a doctor at the Middle University of Texas in Galveston, Marin Thompson, came from a wealthy family in Hamburg. She had gone to America in the early 50s, and uh, as a lot of German women of that generation, they couldn't find a husband because most husbands had died, mm. or the eligible guys had died on the Russian front or the Western front. Never thought of that. Sure, Germany lost four million soldiers, you know. So three cousins, brilliant cousins, one a psychiatrist, all women. The second one, she was a radiologist, oncologist, and the other one studied music, ended up in Paris. But the first two ended up in Texas at the university, uh, Medical University of Texas in Galveston. And uh, so I took a Greyhound bus from New York through the southern states in 1959 and uh, couldn't believe it. Wow. I said, this, this is the America that I've dreamt of. And... I thought this was truly the democracy in the world. Yeah. Saw these stock white signs, you know, for colors only, for whites only. Right. Uh, stunning. Mm-hmm. Shocking and stunning, but such it is. And then came to Galveston, Texas. Humid. The beginning of June. And typically German, my cousin and her husband, who was a Dutch doctor, they had a job for me the next morning. And the job was with a friend of theirs who was a pathologist who did study on arthritis on knee joints of cadavers. 
So my first job was cutting open knee joints of cadavers so you could study the progression of arthritis. Wow. Well, that prepares you to be an actor. That was my first job. Cutting open, I suppose. Yes. Wow. Stayed there for about four weeks, and that's it. Anyway. How long did you stay in Galveston? Four weeks. Then the family moved to Dallas, and I tried to get into the Marine Corps because I thought that's athletic, it's tough, let's do it. In Germany, we call them Leathernecks. Yes. And Lederlacken. And I said, that's for me. That's, you know, I like it. Fighting, brawling, sports. Yeah. And um, become a citizen in five years. I said, that's it. So I went to the recruiting station and filled out, had, had to do a test. And I had obviously grown up on the metric system. Knew nothing about yards and miles and inches and mm-hmm. feet. No clue. So all the mathematical questions were in American measurements. So I said that dumbfounded. I said, I have no idea how many feet and what. I have no clue. Then the test also had certain American vernacular expressions. I didn't answer. We didn't have multiple choice in Germany. We did everything in essay. We had to write things. (laughs) Right. No multiple choice. And so he said to me afterwards, he said, you're obviously rather bright, but please come back in about half a year. You need to understand this and this and this. I said, thank you. So I left and uh, asked my relatives if they knew anyone else in America. And they knew an old rancher who had come to America in 1900 and bought a ranch outside of Missoula, Montana, Mm. a place called Florence, Montana. I wrote, do you need someone? Yep. Greyhound bus from Dallas, Texas to Missoula, Montana. And the next morning, at five in the morning, wake up, breakfast, you were assigned a horse. I grew up in the farm country in Germany, so I was used to physical labor. And uh, we went out riding out and we fixed fences and all kinds of stuff and baled hay and, and rode the cattle down from the mountains. And I soon realized I didn't want to remain a cowboy. <laughs> so they said someone knew about my having won the German Youth Championship in discus and javelin and shot put with my team, they said they give scholarships at universities here for sports. So I applied and got a scholarship, but they only paid tuition. So I had to make a living. So they had a job for me in a lumber mill outside of Missoula on the green chain. You know what that is? No, what's the green they bring chain? In the, they bring in the logs on 18-wheelers, and they saw the logs into right. various boards. Right. And the, the boards come out on a chain, and there are 10 guys on one side, 10 on the other, and you pull a certain sized board all night from 6 to 2 in the morning Whoa. for eight hours. And my first lecture was at 8 in the morning. So needless to say, that is one of the reasons I wanted to do that river trip, <laughs> because the upshot was a documentary film that we would do and make and come to California. That's why the decision to join that guy on that river trip was an easy one to make. So, like, the river that can't be conquered would be better than the life of you bet. <laughs> monotony. Wow. That's well, what a beautiful state, Montana. I was there in the 70s in Billings and Bozeman and around there. And I competed in those in those towns. I'll bet you did. Because with our track team, we competed in Bozeman, uh, in Spokane, Washington, and in Utah, etc. I camped out the Yellowstone River and just drank wow. in the beauty there. Yeah. That beautiful part of the country. It's yeah. gorgeous up there, but we're glad you came here. It worked out yes. good for us. I'm very happy I came here. I know. And, and when I picked up your book and I just was thumbing through it, I, I looked and the most shocking thing in it was that your candor on your father and how he was a Nazi. Yeah. I mean, he was a Nazi and Nazi Germany. And mm-hmm. you talk about it and I was like, whoa, and that intrigued me. And so I read more and it was, you, you put it beautifully and you, and you made me understand this how that could happen which i think that the value of reading this book if you, if mm-hmm. nothing more than that but it's it's so mm-hmm. rich with so many things mm-hmm. yeah it is the the as you know i have obviously dealt with the subject matter ever since i came to america and in germany we didn't discuss the atrocities of the second world war until the 60s mm-hmm. All we discussed in history classes is up to the Second World War and the fact that Germany lost it, period. And in the 60s, I was gone by then. So what led me to all of this is a film 
There was a theater on Beverly Drive and Wilshire Boulevard, a movie theater. It doesn't exist anymore. And they showed a film called Mein Kampf. I thought, that's German. Kind of homesick. I said, let me take a look at that. And that was arguably the most uh, epiphanous two hours I spent in a movie theater. It was a documentary film done by a Swedish filmmaker about Nazi Germany Mm -hmm. and the inevitable end of it and the concentration camps and I describe all that in my book and uh, it changed me intellectually made me intellectually very curious made me politically very curious historically very curious and trying to understand that phenomenon which is almost impossible to understand and uh, read all the books written about that era and uh, then played soccer for a Jewish team called the Maccabees with the intention of proving to myself that we are not what Hollywood has made us out to be. We are not all genetic anti-Semites. It's mm. absolute bullshit. It's mm-hmm. nonsense. And I, I so rebelled against that notion. And it angered me enormously. And so I wore the Star of David on Sundays on my soccer uniform and the Nazi uniform during the week on television. <laughs> Wow. to the confusion of a lot of people. Yeah, right, right. right. And um, with that team, we were seven Israelis and, and two Germans. I was the token German and two from the Ethiopian national team. We won the U.S. championship in 1973. Wow. And one of the proudest moments I've, I've ever uh, that in winning the German championship. And been very concerned about this subject matter, and I said, I need to do something. I was I had given an interview to the Washington Post about this subject matter, and they invited me to Washington, D.C., and I uh, was at the Reagan White House and the Bush White House and then met the German ambassador, and uh, we decided to create the German-American Cultural Society. That was my idea. I said, I'll only do it if we have German-Jewish dialogue. Great. And we deal with these caricatured images face-to-face. Been a wonderfully interesting afternoons and evenings. Wow, that is long journey. And long journey. my father was indeed a member of the party, as anyone who did anything in business was. And he was mayor of the town I grew up in. And I just talked to my eldest brother uh, day before yesterday on the phone. And there were five hundred thousand Jews in Germany when Hitler took power. Five hundred thousand of which 300,000 left by 1938. They didn't trust it. They listened to the propaganda, didn't trust it. 200,000 stayed saying they would never, nothing would ever happen to them because they had fought for Germany during the First World War. They were Germans. They felt German first and then Jewish. My eldest brother tells me, my father, my mother had Jewish friends, a dentist and a lawyer. And when they suddenly disappeared in about 1940-41, that's when my father began to have his doubts. Enormous secrecy in the regime. When he took over, and this one must remember this, there was no television. There was no Walter Cronkite on TV saying, you know, uh, the Führer Adolf Hitler intends to kill six million Jews or whatever. I mean, there was none of that. It was all about economics. It was about rebuilding a destroyed Germany that was destroyed after the First World War and after the Depression. The Depression had started in 1929 on Wall Street. It killed Germany. Germany had many parties, had a very democratic parliament, too democratic, and the Nazis and the communists were having street fights in Germany. So the average German was wanting peace. So when Hitler took over, Uh, there was peace, in quotes, Mm -hmm. at first. He rebuilt Germany, built outer bounds. Everyone had work. My father had work. was doing very well. And um, how little did they know what price they would pay? There was no precedent of that. No precedence of that in in German history. Nowhere anywhere in Europe at the time. I mean, I I know we don't live in that era where there's, you know, we have social media, we have everything, obviously, to a fault. But we definitely, um, everyone needs to blame somebody for their ills, it seems. And we certainly have done that recently in this country. Uh, Yes. And I hold one particular network responsible Mm -hmm. that shall remain nameless. Uh, I think they have uh, abused 
their right to transmit supposed news. They have told lies more or less for the last 20 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I think what happened recently is the culmination of that. I do too. This whole notion of fake news was introduced by that network with great success based on the notion that you simplify complex problems. Sounds familiar. Isn't propaganda the same as fake news? Well, of course. So some of this is right out of the pages of Goebbels, Mm. and uh, who would proffer the notion that if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes a fact. As I said, the culprits in this show remain nameless, but I think they know who they are. Right, I agree. Well, on a lighter note, you and Ed have worked with Marlon Brando. Or you, 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 you were friends. You were friends. I was a friend of his, but I never yeah. worked with him. Well, you him. spoke about working with him in your book, and I found that to be Moritori. I never a film saw called Moritori. Yeah. Now I got to see it. Moritori Tisalutans, which is Latin, stands for those who are about to die salute you. That's what they would say to Caesar. Right. Anyway, what um, a fascinating guy he was, wasn't he? Marlon was, was, was arguably the most. Uh, some wonderful stories, but. We did that film. Tell them all. <laughs> and Marlon uh, and Neil Brunner mm. was the other star. I never had the pleasure of meeting him. Uh, one of the greatest raconteurs ever. I'll bet. In five languages. Yeah. Wow. That he really spoke. Mm-hmm. Not just pretended to, but he really spoke. Right. And uh, Marlon and I started having discussions about politics. He was very interested in Germany and Nazi Germany because he had just done the Young Lions before. Right. And he told me about the American Indian. This was now 1964, where was that film? 64, I think, uh, in Catalina. We filmed it off Catalina Island. Mm. A lot of political discussions about history and all that. And he said, why do you want to be an actor? You're too interested in other things. I said, why would you say that? I said, you are the idol, the icon of young actors in the world. I said, if you were to do what English actors do, what French actors do, what German actors do, and go to theater now, to Macbeth or Hamlet or Richard III or whatever, you wouldn't say what you're saying. I think Marlon was essentially bored to tears. He's a very bright guy. Yes. One of the most prodigiously gifted actors ever. Yes. Ever in our profession. Intellectually very curious, but I think basically lazy. He was definitely bored about a lot of things when I got to be friends with him. Yeah, he just, uh, it took a lot to get his interest about things. That you, you had to really have some sort of breakthrough thing on wind or solar, the things he liked to discuss yeah. with me to really get his attention. Yeah. But he was often bored unless he really... He invited, he invited me and my wife to a screening of the Vietnam debates at Chicago University. Um, in 68? Hans Morgenthau, Eric Severide. Oh, boy. Uh, McGeorge Bundy. Wow. They were all there. It was a Great famous, famous debate. And the screening was at Universal Studios in the summer. He said, you and your wife come over and be my guests. 100 degrees outside. We walk into the screening room, and he received everyone. You know how charming he could be. Very charming. In a fur coat and a, and a <laughs> jeans and a T-shirt on. This is 100 degrees outside. He had two Great Danes. Yes, I remember them. Right. So he received everyone, and who was, who was there, and we sat down in this relatively small screening room. And suddenly, before it went dark, one of his Great Danes defecated. And um, he thought that was very funny, and turned around and smiled at everyone, and then he had someone clean it up. And then proceeded as if nothing had happened. So the curtain went down, I mean, the screen went black, and on comes a film. It's in the middle of the summer, 100 degrees, in the valley at Universal Studios. We were supposed to see the Vietnam debates. And it was a film about igloos with Peter O'Toole and Anthony Quinn. Quinn the Eskimo, right. So we all sat there and looked at each other and said, what the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> Nanook of the North. What is this? Well, it was his way of making fun of Universal Studios, of those two actors. Do you understand? He was making fun of the whole thing. Oh, Oh my my God. So everyone sat there, and we all looked at each other. This can't be. We see 90 minutes of it. 
film comes to an end, he turns around with his charming smile, turns back, now comes the Vietnam debate. <gasps> a 90 minute joke. Yes. Oh wow. my God. That's so, commitment. Oh, oh, oh. That's commitment. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> was there air conditioning in this? In yeah. The, okay. Well, yeah, there was air conditioning. Otherwise, it would have been, been. broken up. Yeah. And then he stood afterwards in the receiving line and thanked everyone for coming. It was very charming. And then he invited my wife and me to a restaurant called Vega or Vegas. Casa Vega. Casa Vega. Yeah. He did? Yeah. That's a funny place and, to go. Uh, he went with, to all those places. Yeah. With Marie and with, with yeah. Phil and Marie. Yeah. They were his makeup people. Phil that lived down the street. Remember Phil Rhodes? Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Phil Rhodes? Yeah, yeah. No, not Phil Rhodes. What's his last name? I, I don't know. But I Phil, can't remember. And he used Phil to come by our house. He used house. to come by the house. Yeah. That makeup guy, Phil. Yeah. I can't Phil think of Marie. He was like a yeah, hundred Phil Marie. Sweet yeah. people. Very nice people. Very sweet. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he and they and, and my wife and I were sitting there at dinner and, and talked. And Anyway, I will never forget that. <laughs> no, that's never forget memorable. That. That but that was Marlon's bizarre sense of humor. Other stories true when he went for an interview for, they wanted him for Superman. They were so happy that he considered playing the, the father from another planet. Yes. Is it true that he said, um, you know, I thought about this. One my voice just comes out of a suitcase. He wanted to play it as a suitcase. He I heard that. Play. That was one, one of his requests. One of the ideas, the balloons, the trial balloons he floated was suitcase. The other one I heard was he wanted to be dressed up like a bagel. Exactly. From Nate and Al's. Exactly. Not just any bagel. Exactly. A bagel from Nate and Al's. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So imagine, I mean, you and I have been in these offices before where you, you know, they're all very serious and sitting in suits and, you know, they're counting the money. I said, my God, we have Marlon Brando in this. Fantastic. So they, they apparently tried desperately to talk him out of it, you know, because they wanted to see his visage. I mean, you don't pay Marlon, forget how many millions he got for that. His bizarre sense of humor and his disdain for the business is so sad. And occasionally he would take it to the mat to the point it would wind up on the screen. In uh, Missouri Breaks, exactly. I went and visited on that movie. He would dress up in a gingham gown, a calico dress for a thing. He's not supposed to be a woman. Exactly. There's nothing about cross-dressing in the script. He and he's just dressed up but with a bonnet you, and a thing. How do you say no to Marlon Brando? How do you say no to Marlon? Oh, my God. And he famously would, you know try to avoid learning lines at all costs. He had a little earwig that people would feed him yes. lines occasionally, but on, yes. uh, on this particular movie, on Missouri Breaks, he would have the cards there to have different, they'd like gaffer tape them to a fence, what have you, but at this point, there's no fences, no place to put them, but thank God there was cows in the field. They took gaffer's tape and taped a card to a cow. <laughs> I'm here to tell you I was there. I know this to be true. They taped a card, a cue card it's, to a cow. It's just... Listen, if I you can get you. away with it, why not? Can I what ask you something? Do you, do you have a roll of tape, just some gaffer tape? Yes, I do. Somebody <laughs> get the card and put it over where? <laughs> on the cow, for God's sake. It's right in my... I don't think we can put it on the cow. No, you've got to put it. They can't see from that side. Put the camera... You're not listening to me. Move the camera to the other side of the cow. Then you're going to be fine. Yep. Uh, Yep, yep. Well, I was very fortunate. I got to to meet him at the end there. So. Oh my God. Yeah, we're you know those people, and and yeah. then you know you get to where you get to play a part for thirty seven years. Yep. So that's a nice segue and from play Brando it to. You're so good deeply on that grateful show. and um, love it and learned a lot about learned to come to peace with what I do. Right. Because in the sixties, I was always very upset about this guest. I guessed out on probably more than most other actors. And I was so maybe not burned. more than Ed. He's I done. Was, maybe, uh, you know, no, no. Well, I by can't. now, well, 37 years, I've not done it. <laughs> yeah. But before then, I mean, in the 60s and 70s, every conceivable show. And um, I was burned out. Always played bad guys. Russian bad guys, Italian bad guys, German bad guys. <laughs> I mean, just bad guys. It was empty. And uh, going back to Dabney Coleman, he says, do it, you'll love it. He's absolutely right. I've Dick learned, is a great I've character. learned to love it. Because you show shades of your character that you were never able to show before. When you do nighttime of films, you play a caricature most of the time. Right. You don't play a real human being. In daytime, certainly in my part, you get to do that. Yeah. With enormous vulnerability and, and yet meanness and, uh, you know, plays a 
son of a bitch, and, and, and yet he is very vulnerable. And real, that's the key. Yeah. That was the key to Dabney's thing. In 9 to 5 or in Buffalo Bill, he was a real guy that was this horrible person. But you, right. you, you took the ride because it was real. It wasn't a cartoon. Well, and like you, you clearly. make, it, make yeah. him real and have some depth and have some to. texture. You have to. Absolutely have to. Otherwise, I would be out of the business so fast. But 37 years. Now, do you still... Okay, this is my big bug. I've tested for a couple of soaps, which I didn't get, by the way. Um, Hence, the amount of dialogue that has to be learned. Do you Mm -hmm. still have to do that? Mm -hmm. You still... So Mm -hmm. it keeps your brain sharp. Very sharp. And in other words, the most I've done in Monday was 62 pages. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I'm going to kill myself. You didn't memorize it. Tell I'm me you didn't. Doing, oh, yeah. You had to. Yeah, I, 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 my brain just exploded. You get, you get so fast at it that you memorize on the spot, practically, for each new scene. You sort of an overall view, and then you go, okay, let's go. Da, 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 da. Okay, let's let, uh, a famous line, let's shoot the shit. Yes. Let's go. I have no patience for a lot of rehearsals. Let's go. Boom. Wow fortunately learned very quickly but so do all the ones who have survived on our show right melody thomas scott who plays my wife is very brilliant that way uh, joshua morrow plays my son very good we all learn differently some pretty well on the spot oh my god and um, how do you do it though i mean what's your what's your i'm fascinated do you just look at it and make symbols in your head or no i think the most important thing about learning something by heart is to understand it Right. Really understand. Understand the ideas you first. Understand Story the idea then. first. You have yeah. to really understand it. Right. And that's the difficult part in Shakespeare, uh, because Shakespeare is so full of ideas. Right. In right. one speech, and you get lost in the language. You know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day, to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. There's such beauty in I Shakespeare. Think that's beautiful. Wow. It is, and when you do Richard the Third, now it's the bit of our discontent, but it, it is so full of imagery. Imagery. Yes. Wow. And you never forget it. No. Come on, break out one of yours, Eddie. No. No, I can't top what we just heard. That's, a, that's just beautiful. Do you, are you planning on doing any? I did an evening of 14 monologues wow. out of nine different plays, and I almost thought I was going to die doing it. <laughs> I literally almost shit in my pants. <laughs> I've got to tell you, because you, you, the producer had that idea, and, and, and my God. The days before, wake up at night, you go to the John, you sit there. Now it's the winter, but it's going to be glorious somewhere. The son of young and all the deep ocean of the ocean right now. And they say, oh, no, no, wait a minute. That's da, 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 da. And I literally thought, for the first time, I realized what some people must feel if they either on drugs or become insane. Yes. <laughs> it, literally, I'm not kidding you. No, it I became like you. a tunnel. Right. And then I had to, just before that got worse, I had to just say, screw it, fuck it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I go there tonight. Jump off the if high. It doesn't dive. work. To hell with it. Yeah. So now you sit in the theater. You know the whole thing. You sit in the theater. Good have an hour, Mister Braden. I said, thank you. Mm-hmm. Fifteen minutes. Thank you. There's no one in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of a rageous fortune. I take arms against the sea of my posse and then I die to sleep, sleep. No, I sleep to save me and the heart against the heart. Five minutes. Okay, fine. And then again, you just reach a point where you say, "Fuck it." Fuck it. Go out, jump off the high dive. Hopefully there'll be water in there when I land. And then, that feeling doesn't go away, though. Then, oh, for the muse of fire, this from Henry V, and in the middle of it, you say, oh, wait, and you make the bridge without it being too obvious that you are still thinking about it, and then onto the next one, and then slowly becomes easier. I have never in my life felt such relief after performance. (laughs) I took out whoever was there, to dinner and somewhere sure. in Santa Monica, I got drunk. I felt wonderful. I felt I saw LA totally differently the next day. I said, "What a beautiful, fucking place this is! What a gorgeous place this is!" So we did it again, but I insisted on only doing 
nine monologues from nine different players. Anyway, so... Um, sort of like a near-death experience. Yes, it's a near-death experience. Exactly. <laughs> That's what it is. Exactly. That's awesome. Doing that Mama play for me was like that. I yeah. didn't shut off the whole play. Which one? But, what was it called? November. It? November. It was a David Mamet play. I, it was oh, me and Felicity yeah. Huffman, but I didn't shut up. No, he was, and oh, it was like my. one word, two words, but then they'd repeat one word, two, you know, it'd be like these crazy, you know, David oh, Mamet's like. But to do that many monologues, I don't know how you do it. It's a oh, great way to end up here. I'm just so grateful that you yeah, joined us. Yeah, it's I just, mean, well, we could go on and on, and I, I highly urge I respected both of you so much, and, and your engagement, and... Uh, Political and environmental, I really have respected that. Right back at you, Eric. Thanks for the message you've been promoting for years. You're a wonderful guy, and I'm happy to know you, and I hope to see you at Tana's or somewhere soon. Or, you you know, on the political trail. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll shoot the shit with Dabney. Let's do it. You know? For everyone listening, if you want to buy Eric's wonderful book, and I highly, highly recommend it, I'll Be Damned is the name, you can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, Audible, which is my favorite, and it's narrated by Eric himself, and it is sold at many retailers. We'll have those links in the show notes, which you can find on our website. And if you want to know what else he's up to, you can follow him on Twitter at ebraden. That's E-B-R-A-E-D-E-N. E. Braden at Twitter. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Now let's sum up the great points you made during this conversation. Number one, are government regulations good for the environment? You bet. Two, be aware of simplistic solutions to complex problems. Three, we should all be intellectually, politically, and historically curious. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Subscribe to Begliesque on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Leave a rating and a review because it really helps us out. Do little, do a lot, just do something today and tell us what you did. Have a great week, everybody. Bye. Thank you to our executive producer, Tim Street, and producer, Emma Kikuchi. This podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com.